We're continuing today our series on love letter from God, and we are going to be going through Daniel 1, Daniel 3, Daniel 6. But before we get there, I have one key verse aside from our regular key verse that's part of our uh, series. So if you would stand and turn with me to Daniel chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. And then our key verse for the whole series is John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let us pray. Hide me behind your cross, Lord Jesus. Articulate the Father's heart through my voice and let the Holy Spirit breathe new life to us opening our ears to hear the message of God. Amen. You may be seated. Today we're going to be reading through Daniel, and as we do, these first six chapters kind of highlight for us what it was like living in exile in Babylon. Babylon was the country that had come and captured Jerusalem and taken all of uh, the very high-profile folks captive taken them to Babylon, and now they were living among the enemy of their people. They were living in a place that was automatically against them. And so we read that Daniel and his three friends were selected to be trained in the Babylonian kingdom as leaders. As you can imagine, as a a conquering nation... As Babylon begins to conquer all these other places, they need more leaders to help them govern these peoples. So they would select people from among the captives, the exiles that they brought back with them, who would then be put in charge of their own various factions. So the Israelites had Israelites to govern. Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were originally Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were in that group that were supposed to be taught how to be leaders. And one of the very first things they encounter is that the officials who are in charge of them start feeding them food that has been served to the idols as a way of worshiping those idols. So they get food that was a part of a sacrifice to these idols. And it's also food that is not fit for them to eat because they have very strict rules that they have to follow as Jewish people. So they are living by those rules, but they can't if they eat this food that's been defiled. But they're not really free to say how they feel about that exactly. They're kids, first of all. They're probably 12, maybe 13 years old. 
They've been brought into this space where they're supposed to be trained to be leaders, but they don't have any control over what's happening to them. They're under the, really, the direction of their jailer. But they approach him anyway, and they say, uh, uh, we would like permission not to defile ourselves this way. The official said, but I can't do that. I can't not feed you this food because this is the best food we have. And if I don't feed you this, I'm, I'm going to be in trouble because you're not going to look like you've been fed. You're going to start to look pathetic, right? We all know that protein is important for building strong bodies and healthy minds, right? This official is saying, if I don't feed you this meat, if I don't feed you these things, I'm going to get in trouble because you're going to look pale and sickly. And so Daniel says, look, how about if we do this? For 10 days, test us out. Let us just eat vegetables and none of this stuff that comes from the sacrifices. And if we eat those vegetables and we look okay, then let us continue that way and after 10 days. So he agreed. He was like, you know what? 10 days, I can deal with 10 days. You know, the jailer is also afraid that if he presents them and they look sickly, he's probably going to die. This isn't like a nice thing where you just get laid off with a severance. This is a kind of job where if you fail at it, you kind of get executed. That's generally how these ancient nations worked. So he agrees to test them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it says in Daniel chapter 1, verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And then to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. Then in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the kings questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So, not only did they flourish under this vegetable diet, but they were, um, they were blessed by God in exchange for it. And not just blessed, but blessed to the point where they actually were the best of the best among this group of people. So then we turn to Daniel 3. And Daniel 3 is a story maybe you are familiar with. It's where we took our key verse from, and it actually has nothing to do with Daniel specifically. Daniel's not in this story. We can assume he wasn't present for this part of the event, because if he had been, he would have been with these three other gentlemen. These are the three who also refused to eat the royal food, who ate only vegetables, they were called by their Hebrew names earlier, but now everyone has just sort of gone along and called them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And maybe you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
They were uh, they were rulers. They had they were one of the they were part of that group. They were very well received. They became very high in political power. But King Nebuchadnezzar had decided that he was going to um, set up an image of himself. Something you should know about King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he is very, very, very self-absorbed. He knows that he is a very, very good king, and he should have lots and lots of power, and everyone should worship him. He's very important in his own mind. He has a lot of, um, and quite frankly, he has a lot of people who kind of have to agree with him, <laughs> right? So he decides one day that he's going to build a image of himself in gold. It's 60 cubits high, which is approximately 120 feet-ish. So, yeah, really tall and really wide, six cubits wide, which is about 12 feet wide. So this is giant, this big, like a really big thing. And they build it and they set it up. And then they said, okay, everyone that we've conquered, everyone that's part of our community here, uh, you are now instructed that when we play all of this, they have a band, when our band plays, when our orchestra plays, you will bow down and worship this statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. So he wasn't content just to have the statue built. Now he also needs everyone to bow down in front of it. And just to emphasize how important it was, they said, if you refuse, we're going to throw you into the furnace. So FYI, there are real penalties here associated with disobedience. So the band plays. And all the people bow down. Pretty sure it's rather obvious that the three Jewish boys don't. Because they're standing up and everyone else is prostrate on the ground. Nobody wants to hang out in a fiery furnace. No one is ex wanting to do that. Except apparently these three boys. So... Nebuchadnezzar is really mad. It says, actually, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music... If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to save you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, and this is where we get our key verses. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves in this matter. If you, we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. 
But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, you can imagine, this is a guy who is not used to having people tell him no. Like, ever. No one tells him no. But these little, these three little kids, basically, probably in their early 20s now, have just told him no and have told him no in a way that is very, very defiant. If your kid came up to you and said, I know that the punishment for hitting my brother is standing in the corner, but I don't care. You would not take that very kindly, especially if they hit their brother again, right? Because that's very defiant. That's exactly what these guys did. So, because he was so angry, it says, he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the furnace? They replied, Certainly, your majesty, because they're not going to say no anyway. <clears throat> he said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace. I'm sure he didn't get too close, because remember, the guys who threw them in died. So by now, he's standing a little bit back, and he's like, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they came out of the fire. And all of the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. And they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So, they stood up, they didn't bow down, and they were rescued. But their faith wasn't just about being rescued. They didn't know what was going to happen. They only knew that they were going to be thrown into the furnace. They only knew that ultimately this could end in death. But at the end of the day, they also knew that their God was definitely worth standing up for. And they were not going to worship 
some other god. So, this brings us to Daniel 6. And this is probably the most famous story of all of Daniel. And this is the story of Daniel in the den of lions. What's interesting about this, and I think sometimes people don't (coughs) realize this, is that Daniel was not a young man anymore by the time this happened. Daniel had been through now four different kings of Babylon. (laughs) He started under the Babylonian rulers, and then he was under the rulers of Persia. The Persians came and defeated Babylon, and they just kind of kept things going the way they were with the exiles. And then the Medes took over. So King Cyrus, or King Darius, sorry, who was the king in this place, he had appointed, so all the way along, Daniel is still revered and held in high esteem. Every single time a transition happens with the leadership, he still somehow makes it to the cream of the crop list. He is doing things better than everyone else. And so every single time he comes along, and as you might imagine, the other people who are in that same position with Daniel are a little bit jealous. They're jealous not just because Daniel has been appointed to kind of be unequal with them, but he's been appointed to be unequal with them even though he's not even from their country. He's a captive. He should barely even be allowed to walk around freely, and here he is ruling over people. So the other people who are also in charge, they sort of have some scams going where they sort of collect extra taxes and things like that. But Daniel has been 100% honest and faithful. The king recognizes this and decides that he's going to actually promote Daniel over the other rulers. Well, now this is just too much. They can't hardly stand it. They go back through all of Daniel's records and they're like, okay, well, he has to be like us somewhere, right? We all cheat a little. We all take a little off the top. Daniel, he must do it too. They go back through all of his records. They can't find any place where that's true. They can't find, in fact, anything that Daniel does that isn't above board and 100% honest. So they figure out that the only way they're going to get Daniel is by making a law against Daniel's God. So they do. They sort of trick the king into creating a law that says, if anyone prays to anyone but King Darius for the next 30 days, they'll be thrown into the den of lions. And they have this rule that once the king decrees something, it can't be undone. It's sort of a weird ancient law thing that they have going on. So... King Darius makes this decree. And Daniel, who prays every day, three times a day, for the restoration of Israel and the return of the Jews to Jerusalem, he doesn't change anything. He knows about the law. He probably knows that it was brought about for the sole purpose of capturing him and turning him into something 
that he's, you know, into lion food. He probably understands that this is kind of directed at him. He's a very smart guy. He's not made it this far in this space without being smart. He also has a pretty close relationship with God, so it's not like this is news to him. He expects opposition. He gets the opposition. He goes, and he still does exactly what he's done every single day. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God and asking God to restore the Jews to Israel and Jerusalem. Of course, all of his enemies were like basically just standing out underneath the window waiting for him to do it. They're stalking him now. They see him. They go immediately to the king and they're like, King Darius, your favorite Daniel has broken your law. And so Darius knows that he has to then send Daniel to the lion's den. It makes him very upset because he knows Daniel is really good and is a faithful servant. But he has no way out without breaking his own law, maybe subjecting himself to the lion's den, which he's not going to do. So, the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Remember, Daniel is not a young man anymore. He's an old guy. So he's thrown into this lion's den. He's sleeping in a cave, and he's probably like 65 or 70 years old. So the king really feels bad not just because of the lion's den, because he feels like Daniel's probably going to die, but also because it's not a very comfortable place for him to be. And a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. Basically, the whole thing was just killing him. He was so upset. I can't believe this is happening. The first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near to the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den, and when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. So we have this thread through Daniel, of these people who are living in exile. They're living in a place where they don't belong. And they are basically living in enemy territory. And yet, every time they are confronted with opposition, they do the right thing, and they trust God to bring them through it. You might think, how does this apply to us? 
Well, we might feel like we live in a place that is against us. We look at things like laws that increase abortion or that hurt children by keeping them from their parents or any number of things that are anti-God, anti-compassion, anti-Christian that are happening in the world around us. They don't have to be laws. Sometimes it's just the attitudes of people or the sense that there is a lot of animosity generally toward us as believers in the one who rescues. This world is not our place. We live here now, and we have the opportunity to help see it become more like the kingdom we belong to, but our king is King Jesus, and his kingdom is not here. It's not the United States of America. It's not any of the nation states in this world. But we can look at Daniel and his friends and how they lived in enemy territory and how they faced off with adversity. And we can learn some things about how we can react and behave in these circumstances. First, they're respectful. In every single one of the circumstances that they find themselves in, even when they're standing right before King Nebuchadnezzar and he's calling them out, they never say anything negative other than, we're not going to do what you've asked us to do. They do tell the truth. They tell what they are doing. They say that they are trusting God. But they listen to what the Babylonians want, and they simply say no. They say no to eating defiled foods. They say no to bowing to an idol. And they say no to ending prayer. And ultimately, they wind up respected for it. Not because of anything that they've done, but because the God that they trust is able to deliver them from those circumstances. The second one... (coughs) They're not offended. They are simply true to what they believe. They don't denounce the other. They don't say, you guys are awful. How dare you do that? How dare you bow to King Nebuchadnezzar's idol? How dare you eat this awful food? How dare you pray only to the king? They don't call out all of the others who do those things. They don't denounce the Babylonians for doing what Babylonians do. Instead, they stick to what they believe and firmly refuse to do anything else. I was reminded recently that this is incredibly important for us. Sometimes when we get outraged or offended, it looks like we hate those who are against us. But that is not who we are called to be. We can stand for what we believe in without condemning or being derogatory towards the other. Sometimes we try to make it an us versus them situation when really 
It's just about us being true to what we believe. And it doesn't have anything to do with what they do or what they believe. It has to do with us being true to what we do and what we believe. Because that's what we can do. The less angry way to stand firm is the way that is the biblical way. We can know that our outrage, our anger, our insistence that everyone believes the way we do, it only hurts our witness. We don't have to prove we're right to be right. We just have to live right in that space. The last thing that we can learn from them is that they trust God for the outcome. They know that things could go wrong in each of these instances, but they trust that God has got their backs and will be faithful no matter what they face. And we can learn a lot from how they handle themselves. We can stop being disrespectful to those who oppose us. We can stop being offended or outraged about other people's behavior. Stay in your lane and be accountable for what you do. Stand firm. You don't have to hoop and holler about it. Just do it. And we can trust God for the outcome. Sometimes we might have to say with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if we are thrown into the furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us. But even if he does not, we will not stop standing up. It's not likely that we're going to face a literal fiery furnace. But we might have to walk through job loss, financial devastation, family derision, all kinds of things. And even if God doesn't rescue us from those things specifically, we can absolutely trust that even if he does not, he is faithful. He will be who God is. And he will walk through it with you, no matter what your battle looks like. In Babylon, our best witness is us being true to God and letting God be faithful, no matter the opposition. We may live here, but we don't have to serve the God of this place. We 100% know better. And so as we have been doing every week in this series... I will remind you of what it looks like to say that the love of God is found in every page of Scripture. If you would grab your blue sheets. Does everybody have one? There's some on the back. If you'd follow along and say whatever is bolded on your page. What does it mean to say God loves? God loves us to create us, to form us from the dust. God loves us to let us fail, to let us choose our own way over God's, to let us chain ourselves to sin and defeat and heartbreak and sorrow and death. God loves to provide a rescue, a way back through wanderers, murderers, adulterers, defaulters, promise breakers, foreigners, strangers, and lovers. 
to show us mothers, judges, kings, and prophets who loved and spoke for God and kept reminding us of the promise of redemption. To show us how evil and wrong continually mess things up and how obedience to God fosters holiness and bestows blessing. To send us Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, to preach and live peace, grace, hope, joy, and love. To see Jesus rejected, to see him die, to see him buried. To raise Jesus from the dead and send the Holy Spirit to remind us of all we have in him and empower us to live like Jesus. To want us to live like Jesus, an abundant life infused with all the fruit of the Spirit, redeemed, free, loved. To still let us choose our own destiny. To promise the hope of forever, of resurrection from the dead, and final judgment. God loved us enough. God loves us enough. God will always love us enough. For God so loved the world. God loves you. God wants you to know it. God wants you to live in it. God wants you to be able to love others because you know you are loved. God's love is expressed to us every week most tangibly as we gather at this table. The son who died and yet lives gave everything so we could know the depth of God's love. So come, drink the wine, eat the bread. Know you are loved. God loves you. Go love the world with him.